let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we will continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. We are in chapter 12, in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. We will finish up our reflections on verses 14 to 18, and then really wrap up our reflections into chapter 12, because we only have, I think, three or four more verses of chapter 12. But before I get into chapter 12, I wanted to speak to a few things here just off the top, the first of which is just my ongoing gratitude to all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to listen to Seeds of Truth. And yes, I'm appreciative of those who are listening locally and listening to this program live, but also all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules and who are tuning in by way of podcast, if you are in the countries of Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, in Western uh, Europe, Portugal, Spain, France, Germany, Italy, I also see that you are listening in China, Croatia, the Ukraine, uh, Cameroon, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa. It is always... um, a very humbling thing for me, and at the same time, a very convicting thing for me to see who's listening. And in saying that, I want all of you to know that when I say, like I did yesterday, I want to hear back from you, that especially includes those who might be listening to Seeds of Truth in Nigeria, Kenya, uh, the Ukraine, Croatia, because ultimately, in the end, if you are sacrificing your time to listen to Seeds of Truth, certainly. I ought to be willing to sacrifice my time, but it is it wouldn't be right to say sacrifice because it really does bring me a joy, <laughs> a joy to respond to you. So as I was requesting yesterday to hear back from you, especially as it relates to the future programming of Seeds of Truth, please do send me your uh, observations, send me your suggestions. You can go not only to my direct email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, but also you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. That's J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T dot org. Just go to the contact link button there and send your suggestion on its way and be rest assured that I will give it its due time to look that over so that I might come to a consensus on maybe some of the new programming that I might do. Because again, as I noted yesterday... Probably by the end of next week, we will be done with 2 Corinthians. All right, so I will be looking to do some uh, new programming. Now, as I noted yesterday's program, there was something that I was talking about that has been fodder for some discussion, and that is this whole idea that we have this propensity to just be focused on self. Is our focus on God and what God wants from us or on us and what we want from God. Maybe just another way of putting our conversation yesterday. Uh, What is our focus? 
Is it about the ego drama or about the theodrama? The ego drama is about the narrative we write, the narrative we direct, the narrative we produce, and above all else, the narrative we star in. The theodrama is about the narrative that God writes, produces, directs, and above all stars in. Is God the center of your life or are you the center of your life? This is the kind of questions we are made to ask after a careful reading of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. Because for St. Paul, it is all about God. It is all about God. You know, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And my dear friends, all of us, each and every one of us, are made to respond to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And is this a question that is entirely in the subjective of what we think? We are persons, which means we are subjects. But God has revealed truth. So it's just not only in the subjective, that is our response, but a response that always needs to be in the objective. Why? Because God has revealed himself. And so when he asks the question, who do you say that I am? We can offer up what we think about Jesus and who Jesus is to us. But that response always has to include what we can come to the conclusion as objective. Jesus is a B and C, all loving, all merciful, all just. Why? Because he has revealed these things, these things in history. So we have to be careful in our response to that question of who do you say that I am to reduce it in its entirety to the subjective because ultimately objective truth has been revealed. Remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way or a truth and a life, but the way, the truth, the life. That whole passage in John chapter 14, verse 6 is in the imperative There is an is (laughs) because there is an ought, and that ought is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? There is an is because there is an ought, and that ought is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is absolute truth. And this, this truth should never be intimidating or overwhelming or something that would have us turn our back to him. No. Because absolute truth has revealed itself in what? Love. Love. Love that again is all merciful. Right? So we are asked that question, who do you say that I am? And who we are as subjects respond to that question objectively, mindful that the object at hand is also a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who loves us who meets us exactly where we are at and walks with us exactly as he is, inspiring us to become the best version of who he desires us to be, okay? Something else here. Matthew Kelly was keen to make the point, there is another question that isn't recorded in sacred scripture, but certainly one that God asks of us. Who do I say that you are? Who do I say that you are? Another very important question, because once we come to understand God in who he is, then, 
And really only then can we begin to understand who we are. Because once we understand the fullness of the beauty of Jesus Christ, we now have a deeper understanding of the potential of who we can become in Jesus Christ. In all of our particularity, a topic that I have been touching upon, uh, emphasizing, I should better say, more recently, is this whole idea that God says to us, I created you because you can manifest me like no one else. And you see, my friends, God has the right to say that to all of his children because there is a particularity, there is a uniqueness in all of his children. That he can say to me, in the same way he can say to you, that you manifest me like no one else. Because each and every one of us have something distinct to offer the beauty of Christ. Now, why am I talking about these questions of who do you say that I am and who do I say that you are? Because once we shift our whole focus on these questions, then, then it is no longer about the ego drama, but the theodrama that I have been talking about. It is no longer about me, myself, and I, but about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for St. Paul, it is about God. God first. Not second, not third, not fourth, not, not 5 p.m. or 7 p.m., but number one, and whenever you wake up, right? What did St. John Vianney say once? That if prayer isn't the first thing in the morning, then Satan has already won. I couldn't agree with him more. If we are not waking up in our morning and soon thereafter praying to God, then Satan already has the upper hand. Why? Because we're moving in a day without being in conversation with him. So it's very important. I know someone once said to me, well, but I pray better in the evening. Okay, that's fine. But does that mean that you sleep all day? <laughs> because you can pray very fine in the evening. But what are we talking about here, my friends? Prayer is conversation with God. Prayer is about courtship with God. And if we are going to be in proper courtship with God, this has to be an ongoing conversation. This is why St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that we are to pray without ceasing. Yes, we go to Mass, we pray the office, we, we pray our devotionals, but it's all about how these things form and inform our ongoing conversation with God, that we might go ever deeper in God. The formal prayer is foundational, but it should lead to a much more vibrant informal prayer with God. Okay? All right. So, tidying up just one piece as it relates to chapter 12, verses 14 to 18, in these series of verses that had Paul talking about his love for the Corinthians, there is this verse, verse 18, I urged Titus to go and sent the brothers with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit and in the same steps? What's going on here? St. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he has brothers in Christ who are doing what he is asking the Corinthians to do. So he is saying, yes, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ, but also imitate others who imitate Christ. 
who do so in lockstep with me, who do so in lockstep with the revelation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. There is a powerful message that is sent when two are gathered in his name. And this is what St. Paul wants us to see. And certainly, my dear friends, this is what we all need to internalize. If our prayer groups from time to time have been reduced to two, then pray. Because why? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. My point is this, that St. Paul wants us to see that there is great power in unity. And that power is seen when we are in lockstep with the gospel message. Uh, So, very important. The last piece to uh, verses 14 to 18, and it's something that Father Stegman, the Jesuit, notes in his commentary on these verses, and that's the point of a kind of parental love of ministers. You know, Father Stegman says here, we have seen that Paul presents himself as the Corinthians' spiritual father, their father in faith. We have talked about this a great deal. In this role, he tries to protect the community from harmful influences and exhorts them to proper behavior. In a previous letter, he intimated that as their father, he would come with a rod, that is, with the force of discipline if they did not mend their ways. And as we will see, Paul is about to issue a similar threat. Now, as he concludes, such parental authority, however, is only legitimately and effectively exercised when it is grounded in love. This is especially true in connection with discipline. Discipline. What does the word discipline mean? I think we have talked about this before. It comes from the same root word as disciple, right? Disciple, discipline, to come to understand. To come to understand. What is St. Paul doing? He is not only preaching and evangelizing, he is also catechizing and teaching that in the end, if you want to come to understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ, you have to be disciplined because to be disciplined and to be a disciple essentially becomes one and the same thing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul describes his conduct among his spiritual children in such intimate terms as a nursing mother who cares for her children with gentleness. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, just verses later, he describes himself as a loving father who encourages his children towards growth. So my dear friend, St. Paul has grounded his discipline in this deeper understanding of what it means to be a parent. And we ought to highlight this because we know what this is like. Most of us are parents, and we know the difficult task that is before us as parents to just not love our children. No one parent is never going to say they don't love their child, but to do so with a deeper understanding of the importance of discipline, discipline, that in the end they might follow uh, the path that leads to success and blessedness and blessings. St. Paul uses such phrases as nursing mother and loving father to highlight this kind of parental love he has for his children. And could we not say that like the apostle, all ministers are called to grow in loving those God has put in their charge? 
willing, what did we talk about yesterday? Willing to gladly spend and be utterly spent for their sake. We gladly spend and utterly spend ourselves for our children, do we not? St. Paul challenges us to do the same thing for those souls that God has entrusted under our care. And here, again, I'm speaking to those who might be in some ministerial role. All right, verses 19 to 21 before we run out of time. This is chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. Have you been thinking all along that we are defending ourselves before you? In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ and all for building you up, beloved. For I fear when I come, I may find you not so as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that there may be rivalry, jealousy, fury, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and licentiousness they practice. All right, so Paul here explains to the Corinthians, as one who conducts himself as in the presence of God, that he has been speaking to them in Christ for their benefit, not his own. He doesn't worry about himself. Now here, he expresses his fear upon his arrival in Corinth that he will find the community rent apart by divisive and destructive behavior. Moreover, Paul suspects that some who have been guilty of sexual immorality have not yet repented and that such failures will cause him much sorrow and force him to take divisive action against the guilty parties. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul anticipates a possible reaction to his letter. Paul is so human. I mean, we can theologize all day and all long about St. Paul's theology, but man, he is so human. And to fail to contemplate and ponder his humanity when studying Paul would be a failure to study Paul because it comes through. You, you see it in these verses. He's anticipating a possible reaction to his letter and how at least some of the Corinthians might be thinking that he has merely been defending himself defending himself before them, seeking only to justify himself in their eyes. But Paul asserts that this is not the case. Rather, he wants the Corinthians to understand two things. First, everything he does, including the very letter that he writes, is undertaken as one who stands in the sight of God. My dear friends, for St. Paul, there is not one thing that God isn't a part of. Observe, my friends, that Paul appeals to God as his witness that he speaks to the community in Christ as one sent by God the Father. He constantly goes back to this. I am one who has been called. This is our confident assurance. And my simplicity of life and my Christian ambition should speak for itself, should it not? Yes, of course it should. Okay, second, Paul makes explicit that his writing has been aimed at 
building them up. Indeed, my friends, it is for this singular purpose that Christ has given him apostolic authority. One might go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and following, where he was talking about how we are all called to be co-workers in the building up of the kingdom of God. Read verses 5 to 8 again. So, all of that being said, what might appear as self-defense, for example, we can go through a number of things that we've already talked about, his explanations for changed travel plans, for writing the tearful letter, the lengthy exposition of his manner of being an apostle, and, and for that matter, uh, boasting in reaction to that of the super apostles, has all been in service to the Corinthians to help them understand and appropriate the gospel message. These letters are not ends in of themselves, but a means to an end, an end that would be for St. Paul, hopefully, that these Corinthians now might find themselves better informed and invoking the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, while Paul is committed to building up the Corinthians, <laughs> he makes clear that he will not tolerate behavior that belies the identity of the church as sanctified by Christ Jesus to be what? Holy. He conveys his fear that upon arriving in Corinth, he might find what? But the community, not such as he might wish, right? That is, he is afraid, my friends, that he will encounter a situation marked by infighting, marked by division, which of course is the antithesis of the church's call to be the body of Christ, the recipients of God's gift of reconciliation. Wherever you see disunity, know that that is the work of the adversary. This is his function. In God's grace, we must always be at the service of seeking reconciliation, informed by discernment, informed by good contemplation and pondering for sure, but nonetheless at the service of reconciliation. Here, Paul lists eight vices. The first is rivalry right? Quarreling. Where you have quarreling, you are going to have disunity. The second vice is jealousy, that vice which erodes relationships, that vice which desires to have something that my brother in Christ has, that lacks an appreciation for the particular uh, detail, unique detail, concrete detail that God has given us. God has entrusted to each and every one of us something that properly belongs to him. And I would dare say this vice of jealousy is really a shot against God to what he has endowed you with. So this is why it is so important for us to discover our purpose, huh? You discover your purpose in life, there's going to be a whole lot less jealousy. All right, now the next six vices are given in the plural form, and, and most commentaries speak to this, because by giving the plural, what does that do? But indicate several instances of the named behavior. So, fury is rendered as outbursts of anger. The least talked about capital sin, anger, and probably the one capital sin that has run rampant on our culture today. There are a lot of people out there that are angry, and St. Paul says, 
If you want unity, if you want peace, you cannot have anger. He goes on. The fourth vice, selfishness. And, and selfishness denotes that factitiousness that is so aptly translated as personal rivalries. Uh, the fifth and sixth vices, these pertain to speech. I have devoted whole programs to the injustices of speech. These here named are slander and gossip. Slander and gossip. A man, oh man, have families and communities been fractured by slander and gossip. The last two are actions that are more grounded in conceit that, again, result in disorder. In all cases, what St. Paul wants us to see is that there is great power in the witness of unity. I want to kind of close with this, and, and I know I've already touched upon it, but it's just so important for us to understand. Because all throughout his letters, St. Paul encourages his fellow Christians to live in unity with one another. Indeed, most of his specific exhortations are to what? Promote unity. Why? Why? One of the concrete manifestations of God's power at work in the gospel, as he reminds us not only in these epistles, but also in the epistle to Rome, is that it breaks down barriers that frequently alienate and divide people from one another, even including those barriers of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic differences, and gender. What does St. Paul say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28? If we desire unity with people that are not a race, ethnicity, socioeconomic space and difference, and gender, we have to allow God to invade our souls through and through. And when God does that, you will know unity. Why? Because in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is unity. And this is why unity is such a profound witness to the gospel message. My dear friends, you cannot have unity without loving in truth. So you do need to study truth for what it is as revealed by Jesus Christ. But in doing so, understand that truth itself is there, that we might go deeper into his inexhaustible, merciful love, which has as its beautiful fruit, unity. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.